Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with my producer, Marty Oakley. I want to start this evening with sharing a personal anniversary with you. Five years ago, on June the 20th, 2017, my mom was a victim of hospice in Georgia and was murdered with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. She had congestive heart failure that was being successfully treated with medication. And we, like many other people, had heard about the promises of a nurse to come to the house so she didn't have to go to the doctor to give baths, sitter service, light housekeeping, and maybe a meal here or there. And since Dad was 88 and he was her care provider and I lived over 650 miles away, we ignorantly accepted hospice, which turned out to cost Mom her life. One day, they showed up at the house and convinced her to go to the death wing so that my dad could receive respite care. They immediately put her in a coma with 100 micrograms of fentanyl, morphine, and Ativan. Ten days later, in spite of us trying to stop the drugs to hydrate her and take her to the hospital, she died. I will never forget or forgive them, and that's why I have done these programs for the past four years. Over this time, we have talked about how hospice has turned from being a compassionate organization to a place our loved ones go and are euthanized right in front of us with toxic drugs without knowledge or consent. Hospice was never meant to drug a patient into a coma and cause dehydration and starvation and an early death, but it is happening at many hospices. We've had victims' families share heartbreaking stories of losing a loved one and heard the same drugs, the same reactions, and the lies told to each family in various states and countries and from various ethnic backgrounds, financial status, religious status, and ages. It doesn't matter when you live in a society where basic rights to life are taken away and others make decisions for the rest of us. There are no boundaries and no limits to their pressures, as you will hear tonight from our guest. We've had professional experts share their knowledge. We've talked about how hospice staff lull their innocent prey into believing they're here to help. It doesn't cost you a dime, but we know that's not really true. In most cases, it costs your loved ones their life. And many of us, nightmares, having seen the slow execution and being powerless to save our people because we didn't know what was happening until it was too late. We've talked about brain death and how it takes a long time for the brain to heal and how the medical industry is complicit in convincing loved ones, just let go, and the monetary value of organs and body parts, the dangers of approving an apnea test on a coma patient, 
We actually had a coma survivor tell us her story, how she survived after a doctor wanted to take her body parts. We've talked specifically about toxic drugs forced on our loved ones to hasten their death and the horrible side effects and the ultimate being coma and death. But it didn't matter. We've provided resources and hope she'll check them out before it's too late. We believe knowledge is power and implore you to seek answers to your questions before enduring situations and to believe your gut. If something doesn't seem right, it probably isn't. Heed the red flags. And it's important to understand terminology. So I did some research on some terminology for us. Palliative versus hospice care. Palliative care is to improve a patient's overall quality of life if they're suffering from a serious illness until a natural death. You continue to receive treatment along with symptom management and relief. Hospice care is the next step, and they don't treat the illness, but they focus on managing the symptoms such as pain. They provide comfort care and family support for someone with a terminal illness who usually has six months or less to live. Typically, they want you to sign a DNR, but you won't be treated for any illness present or future, such as a UTI. So let's talk about what we're going to discuss tonight. Medical aid in dying, or called MAID, or physician-assisted suicide, which is when someone goes to the doctor and says, I want to die, Supposedly, they have a non-curable disease, but today it's almost for any reason, depression or dementia. And starting in 2023, in Canada, if the person is challenged, they can euthanize them. The doctor prescribes a lethal dose of opioids and or prescriptions for the patient to take. In the end, it's up to the person to decide whether they take the drug but it goes further. According to the Oregon Health Authority, which is the first state in the United States to approve assisted suicide, about one-third of the people who receive a prescription don't take it, but they are relieved of their anxiety about suffering at the end of life because they do have it. More than 90% of these people are already enrolled in hospice. So why the push for MAID if hospice is already performing the task of euthanasia, which they are. So that brings me to euthanasia. It is derived from a Greek word, E-U, which means good, and thanatos, meaning death, to put them together, a good death. The definition is the painless killing of a patient suffering from an incurable and painful disease or someone who is in an irreversible coma, they say a quiet, painless death. I disagree. I, as with many previous guests, witnessed my mom's euthanasia by hospice against our knowledge and consent, and it was certainly not peaceful, quiet, or painless. It was a nightmare I will never be able to escape from. Another site describes euthanasia as the act of ending the life of a person with terminal illness or medical condition that causes suffering perceived as incompatible with an acceptable quality of life. 
with a lethal injection, also called versicillin. And it can be voluntary or non-voluntary. Involuntary, the person must give full consent <clears throat> excuse me, and say that they know that they are ending their life. Non-voluntary, the person is unable to consent, so the decision is made by a guardian or someone else based on their perception of the patient's quality of life or suffering. Do you see any danger? So then there is active and passive euthanasia. Active refers to the physician's deliberate act, usually the administration of lethal drugs, while passive is when life-sustaining treatments are withheld so that a person passes more quickly. A doctor may also prescribe increasingly high doses of pain meds, and over time the dose becomes toxic. And we've talked in the past about how life-sustaining treatment in some cases is being considered water and food. And again, hospice is already euthanizing people right and left, so why do we even need this thing called MAID? And about that painless death, on March the 16th of this year, my guest, Dr. William Toffler, explained the drugs being used in life, and it's not without many issues or pain. I'm not going to go in that tonight as it's a vast discussion. And there's a lot of information at websites if you look, but I know I have a tendency to go down rabbit holes when I do my research, so I'll stop there. I do want to give you a few useful resources, as I do each time, and then I'll turn the program over. Always remember, knowledge is power. Halovoice.org is an excellent informational site for drugs and a medical document that can protect you and your loved ones. They have a helpline, 888-221-4256, and they're always looking for volunteers. So if you know what's going on and you want to help, please reach out to them. Michelle Young-Dewers, a former hospice respiratory therapist, wrote an excellent book titled, quite appropriately, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, where she shares real-life stories and information on what happens behind the doors of hospice. Michelle is a warrior who advocates for the elderly and disabled, and she chose the patient over the facility and its lies. Life Legal Defense Foundation has access to pro-life attorneys in most states, and they've been able to help people who are held in facilities under guardianship. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition Canada, or USA, advocates for the elderly and disabled, and they fight against euthanasia. And last but not least is the website of our guest, DeltaHospiceSociety.org. Let me start my introduction by saying Delta Hospice Society in British Columbia, Canada, is one of the good hospices. They do not believe in euthanizing their patients. They believe in taking care of them as hospice was intended to minimize pain and not drug them into a coma. So please stay with us. Our guest tonight is Angelina Ireland, who is the president of Delta Hospice Society. And a little bit about Angela. She was born and raised in Winnipeg and attended University of Winnipeg and has a BA in political science and a master's degree in political science from Carleton University in Ottawa. 
After graduating, she lived in London, England, and worked for British Telcon, and later traveled through Morocco and Egypt. Upon returning to Canada, she was an accountant and an entrepreneur. In 2014, Angela was diagnosed with cancer, and she was a patient at Delta Hospice. And while navigating her own personal journey, she received excellent care, and she now is a cancer survivor, which is great news. In 2018, after she recovered her health, she joined the Delta Board of Directors. Being a patient and then a board member, Delta Hospice holds a special place in her heart, and she's now the president. She takes a solution-oriented approach to help lead Delta Hospice Society's work and considers it a great honor to support the mandate of authentic palliative care and to act as an advocate, spokesperson, and defender of traditional end-of-life values. But in 2020, this would all change as the government demanded that Delta Hospice begin offering medical assistance in dying to its patients which goes against the intent of hospice to provide care for patients, not kill them. So with that, Angelina, I'd like to thank you for joining us this evening, and I'll let you start and give us some more information on how you got involved with Delta and what's going on. Oh, thank you so much, Marcia, for having me. It's a real honor to be able to speak to your audience tonight. So, yeah, I am here um, in – actually, I'm in Vancouver tonight, but the Delta – the the place where I live is Delta. It's just outside of Vancouver, right on the west coast here of uh, British Columbia in Canada. And, you know, the Delta Hospice Society started about 30 years ago, just a group of private citizens that uh, wanted to do the best that they could for their loved ones, um, and their friends and their neighbors uh, that were facing end-of-life challenges. So the Delta Hospice Society was born. And about 12 years ago, these, the organization fundraised $8 million to build a hospice and a palliative care support center next door. Um, and this really was a state-of-the-art flagship facility. It had 10 palliative care beds, and, uh, you know, it was truly the gem of the, uh, of the city. And, the, you know, the government uh, really loved us. We had a wonderful relationship with the government because, you know, we were a palliative care organization. Now, you fast forward to today, and now the government wants nothing to do with us because we're a palliative care organization. So when we built our hospice, we got into a contract with the health authority in our region. Because in British Columbia, there's actually five health authorities. Uh, We have public medicine here. um, And the health authority that we were under is called the Fraser Health Authority. And we got it. it When we ended it, it was a $1.4 million a year contract to run those four uh, palliative care beds um, for the the region, let's say, um, and but truly, you know, over the years, the Delta Hospice Society has been, um, a, you know, a really wonderful addition to the public health care system. We figure we've put in about thirty million dollars, 
and 750,000 volunteer hours to the public health care system. So a really, you know, truly wonderful relationship um, for the taxpayer, for us, um, and we felt that we were really doing some good work. Now we have back, you know, we can fast forward to when the laws changed in Canada. And I think this is very relevant because the laws are changing in the United States. A number yes. of states have now changed those laws to mirror the same kind of laws that we have in Canada and allowed euthanasia to become a legal practice. So they changed the criminal code here in Canada to make it a non-culpable homicide where doctors and nurses would not be charged with murder for aiding people to kill themselves. But let's, let's face it, it's killing them. So in, in Canada, the provinces are responsible for health care. So they got this direction from the federal government. It went down to the provinces to allow this kind of access to people. So the health authorities, well, I have to tell you, in British Columbia, they embraced this euthanasia thing with a, and a great deal of enthusiasm. And they basically stated that, you know, every hospital government-funded bed was going to provide euthanasia. Um, and this is really extraordinary because in our medical system, you know, uh, not every hospital, not every health clinic provides, you know, all services that people might need. So people are very used to going to certain places to get certain things done for themselves. However, when euthanasia was, uh, you know, brought into the picture, every single bed, every single facility would have to provide that procedure. So we, you know, as a palliative care organization that we took very seriously about being, you know, authentically palliative care, we just simply refused to provide euthanasia to our patients. Mm -hmm. It is not part of palliative care. Uh, you know, we stand on a 50-year medical discipline that does nothing to hasten death. We are very proud that Canada has had a distinguished place in the development of palliative care. Uh, through a doctor named uh, Dr. Balfour Mount, who operated out of a uh, university of, uh, in Montreal called McGill University, he studied personally with who we'll call like the mother of the modern hospice movement, Dame Cicely Saunders, out in England. So this man came back to Canada opened up a palliative care uh, unit in McGill University. And from there, we have developed palliative care down through the years. So, you know, Can I add something? Seriously. Yes. Okay. Uh, when you mentioned Cicely um, Saunders, I want to just re uh, to let people know that she is the one that came up with palliative care in 1967, that's how they came up to decide that they would take care of the patient and that they would give them the best quality of life and minimize their pain. So for Dr. Belfont to have studied with her, that's quite impressive. That's very impressive. It, so It is, you know, and, you know, the, truly he, for us, he's a national hero um, mm -hmm. to be the, we call him the father of palliative care. Um, and so, you know, for us to take on those principles within our organization, um, you know, we've always felt a great responsibility 
to ensure mm-hmm. that, that, you know, we do it right. So when the government came to us and said, well, now you're going to have to provide euthanasia, we said no, right off the bat, no. Uh, you know, what's very odd, as, which I also must mention to you, is right next door to our hospice that we built is the Delta Hospital. It's a land off of the hospital grounds, um, and we leased that for 35 years. A land lease, not a license, but actual lease, you know, registered in the land titles office, and we would have that land for 35 years. Upon that land, we built our hospice. So right next, literally next door to our hospice is the hospital. And they do provide made there. They provide mm-hmm. euthanasia. So there is really no reason that our hospice should have to provide this procedure, um, except that I told you before that, you know, the government of British Columbia has made euthanasia the king of all procedures, mm-hmm. and therefore we, had, we were forced, well, we were told we were going to have to do it. It's control. They want to control you, and if you stand up to them, they will and did squash you. They did. So right. we flat out refused to kill our patients. The end. Um, so therefore they said, fine, we're going to, take your, we're going to cancel your contract, which for us was fine. $1.4 million would be gone. We said we will happily operate this privately. We will privately fundraise. We have a revenue-producing property. We have a second-hand store. All the revenue from that business we will put into the hospice, and we will fundraise balance. Um, so to that, the government said, oh, no, you don't. No, you will not. And they said we could not be privately operated. We could not not accept government money. Um, and they said that they're then going to cancel our lease. So with 25 years left on our lease, they canceled it, and they evicted us. They gave us 30 days to get off the property. Wow. So, you know, we couldn't pick up our hospice and our palliative care center. The palliative care center alone was 7,500 square feet. It's mm-hmm. a huge, beautiful building. And $8 million of assets. And $8 million of assets, which they expropriated. They confiscated without compensation. Mm-hmm. They sent us a letter. They evicted us. Not only that. Now, you must understand this is completely not necessary at all, right? We were, we were more than happy just to continue providing to the public health care system the 10 palliative care beds. It would cost nothing for the taxpayer. It wouldn't cost them $1.4 million, right? We would do this as our duty and honor uh, of palliative care to provide this, and we figure out how we're going to get the money. No, no, that's not acceptable for our buildings and just walk away. So they confiscated the buildings. They kicked us out. We We had patients in our hospice. January 2021, sorry, was it 20? Yeah, 2021, they sent, they walked into our hospice and they sent, eviction letters to dying people in their beds telling them because they didn't want to be euthanized no, because right. they didn't want no. to be euthanized 
Well, they, they, they were closing it down. They're closing down the hospice. You've got to get out. So cause ah. we're, they're, they're, they're taking it from us. They're closing it down, and anybody who's there has got to get out. So that was, that, they gave, that was about two and a half months before we had to get out. Um, so, the, you know, in that time, a, a few people did pass away, just naturally, um, because that was the end of their journey. But the ones that had remained, and there was about three, they, they packed them off to another hospice in the Fraser Health region. So they, they transferred them right out. Out they went. And then they, they kicked us out. They padlocked the door of the hospice. We had to move all of our stuff. You know, we left the stuff in the hospice, but we had to move everything out of our 7,500-square-foot uh, supportive care center. We had, we had trucks come in. We had, we had to get out. Uh, within two weeks after they kicked us out, they o- reopened that hospice. And they still run it to this day under their, um, under their authority. They kick us out. Two weeks later, they reopen it under their authority. And they euthanize people there. So now, let me ask you babies. this. If, if yeah. a person, are they doing the same thing that they are encouraging people? This is the end of your journey. You don't want to live this way. I mean, so they're actually, it's not just a matter of somebody making the decision and saying, hey, I don't want to live anymore. But in the hospice facility, are they actually encouraging patients to accept MAID? You know, I like I really can't answer that question because I don't have evidence. Okay. You know, we, you know, to, you know, to be fair, I don't have. Um, nobody has come to us and told us that. I do know okay. people who have been euthanized in that facility. Um, you know, it's it's difficult. I had a friend that was euthanized in that facility after the government took it from us. Um, so I don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Nobody will, unless somebody talks. Okay. Uh, but no one has said anything to us. So gotcha. we don't know. You know, we know we have, you could call it circumstantial evidence. We do have people calling us and telling us um, that they have been pressured or their family members have been pressured, not necessarily in that facility, but that people have been pressured to accept MAID um, and that um, they can get made very quickly. And in some instances, you know, people have accepted MAID and then been gone the next time their their family members came to visit them, wow. they were dead. Mm-hmm. So you know these things we know are going on. Um, you know we couldn't say if it was the person's idea or somebody else coming to them in the middle of the night, suggesting that you know they can help them, um, that they don't have to be a burden anymore, um, that you know their family doesn't have to worry about them anymore. We we know that happens because we have yes. people have told us that. Um, you know, for us, uh, you know, it, it was a very traumatic for us to lose our, you know, our babies, right? That, that was our, we, we built those, those places. You know, we, um, we ran them for 10 years, the organization. You know, I was a, a client, um, so for me, it was, you know, this has all been very personal. Um, I have known people who have died um, in that hospice over the years, you know, my, my cancer friends 
who didn't weren't as fortunate as I have been have passed away there. So, you know, the whole thing has been quite traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as um, an organization, you know, we have vowed to continue. We have we still have assets. You know, the government didn't clean us out completely, although they truly wanted to, I think, crush us, you know, for our obstinance, for our, our refusal, because we were the last hospice standing, the last hospice refusing to kill their patients. Every other well, government-funded hospice has fallen in British Columbia. Every like other government-funded... To- yeah, I would like for you to talk about the um, since you're talking about the other hospices there in Canada, but don't you have some that are faith-based hospices and that it did not at that time apply to any faith-based hospice? Yes. So the faith-based hospices have an exemption, but you know what? There's only a handful of those. There aren't that mm-hmm. many. Um, they have been given an exemption by the government, and they do not have to euthanize their patients. However, I'm very concerned about that in this moment because the, the largest lobby group in Canada, called Dying with a Dignity Canada, has gone to the, after the government to revoke those, uh, you know, those um, exemptions. And I feel honestly, it's just a matter of time before the government mm-hmm. says no. You can't have an exemption anymore, and you, too, will have to kill your patients. Criminal. Yes. You know, considering that uh, it's uh, our religious belief that we do nothing to, ha- to harm right. people. We don't kill people. Well, but it that, should be that, a doctor belief, a Hippocratic Oath belief, that you don't do anything to harm a person, yes. the patient. Right. So at one so, yeah. point... You actually, your board um, members, you were going to vote on whether or not you wanted to be a faith-based hospice before they actually shut you down. Can you talk about that? Yes. So that was the only mechanism available to us, was to become a faith-based organization and then claim an exemption. So we wanted to go to our membership and ask them if they would like to become a faith-based organization would have required a change to our constitution and bylaws because we were, you know, originated just as a secular organization. You know, we believed that we had many people in our organization and members who were Christians, you know, who would actually like to see the Delta Hospice Society uh, claim, you know, that religious exemption. But we were never even able to have the meeting to ask our membership anything. We were immediately taken to court by a small faction within the membership um, that had our, mem- had our meeting canceled. So we never even got to ask the question. And we were then faced with a, um, a Christophobic attack upon our organization, our board of directors, and anybody who professed to be a Christian. Um, people came after us. Um, I was, I mean, I have been, let's just say, canceled over the last couple of years, except I really don't care 
I never stopped mm-hmm. talking. They wanted to literally destroy me, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because I am a devote, devote Christian, because I, I speak out against euthanasia, because I believe in palliative care. I mean, all these other things mm-hmm. are just like, this is just like the wrong side of the tracks, apparently, to be, you know, where you find yourself in my country at this moment. Well, so, you're a warrior. You're one of the warriors, and they do not like warriors because you speak up for what's right, you speak up for the the people, and the government doesn't like that. They want to shut down anybody who is speaking up for the people and for what's right. We are not a society of right anymore. We are supposed to be a society of followers, and if they say do this, then we are supposed to do this. But when you care about people, like you obviously do, that is not something inherent in our nature is to just roll over and say, okay, well, that person's old and go ahead. You know, in the United States, in hospices, they euthanize people without them asking for it, without consent, without knowledge, and, you know, they just start giving them the drugs. So it's happening without us even calling it made or physician-assisted suicide, it's euthanasia. And it's not a good death, so it's not even euthanasia. It's murder. Yeah. You know, I think that I came to this whole situation uh, very naive. Um, I have, you know, I have gained an immense amount of information and true education having walked to this uh this road in the last number of years, Um, you know, just the utter hypocrisy that, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, this this hospital that's right next to us, that was right next to our hospice, you know, you can't have your baby there. You can't have your baby anywhere in Delta. You have to go off to another city to have your baby. Uh, Are you and serious? Delta's got over 100,000 people. Yes, I'm serious. But wow. apparently in every single, you know, hospital, hospice, uh, long-term care facility, you name it, you can get euthanasia. So, you know, as I, as I learned the hard way um, walking this road, uh, you know, myself and the board of directors became ever more resolute ever more firm on on, on yielding in our position to protect the vulnerable, um, to to make ways that people can protect themselves because, you know, we really don't have a right to live in my country, but we have a right to die. Um, And many people don't even realize how dangerous it is for them to be admitted to a hospice or hospital. Um, And I mean, that's my opinion. Okay. I don't want to get anybody coming down to me. That's my opinion. That's my experience. I know nothing else, but to tell the truth. Um, I'm in absolute agreement. (laughs) I agree with you a hundred percent. They took, our, they took our hospice, but we still have our organization. And we have had to fight 
for our organization. Because once the government took our hospice, then the activists and the lobbyists came after us. Um, and they act like a mob, right? They're like a, they're just, they are absolutely vicious. So we ha- then we had to fight the activists who wanted to take over our organization and assume the assets we had left was about $3 million and then use that to promote euthanasia. So we, so our next battle was inside the courts. We had uh, court cases we had to go through um, in terms of our membership. They tried to uh, flood our membership with people who supported euthanasia. And then they would basically just vote us right off the, off the board and out of the picture. They would take over, and then they would do what they wanted. So they went on a huge membership drive throughout my city. They literally went door to door trying to sign up members uh, to the Delta Hospice Society. It's $10 to be a member. So, you know, all you have to do is tick people off, um, and they'll sign up. Um, they literally poisoned the city against us, uh, and then the membership just came flooding in. Um, and then they wanted to try to call an emergency meeting and have us overthrown. And, you know, we couldn't stop them. We went to court. We went to the highest court in British Columbia to try to stop this hostile takeover. And the courts would not support us. And we lost all the way to the, it's called the Court of Appeal in British Columbia. And we even asked the Supreme Court of Canada to look at our case because this is a direct violation of conscience rights against the Constitution, against the freedom of assembly, that as a 30-year organization, how should we be forced to um, you know, succumb to people who are obviously not there to support our mandate or our mission, but just there to take over? Mm-hmm. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada would not hear our case. So we were left um, with the ruling which said that anybody who gives us $10 can be a member of our organization, regardless of why they want to be a member. They're allowed to be a member. So we said, okay, okay, Lord, help us out of this. And what happened was, I think, a miracle because every pro-life organization in Canada stood to defend us all across Canada. And the court said anybody can be a member, any jurisdiction, anybody who gives us $10. So um, they stood with us and they sold memberships for us. And they brought in, well, I'll tell you, when we started this, we had maybe 600 members. And at this moment, we have 14,000 members. Excellent. So Excellent. They, they stood you know, it was, it's, it's an amazing, what it showed me was that pro-life nation, powerful. So let me ask um, you this. Um, at one point I read in there that you were capping it at 15000 Is that true or no? No, no. I, I tried to say, I tried to cap it. When they, when they were throwing stuff at, like, literally they were throwing money through the door at us to become members mm-hmm. in Delta, Right. I said, listen, we, we can't handle more than 1,500 people as members. Like, it is a huge administrative task. Anyways, they said, we don't care. We don't care how, much, how hard it is for you. We're going to take you over. 
So they reported that I had said that, but that, that didn't matter. The courts ruled anybody can be a member if they've got 10 bucks. So that money, that $10, actually goes to Delta Hospice Society, right? Yes. Okay, yes. so you guys got that. So let me ask you this. Um, I don't know what the percentage is of the 14K of pro-life people and pro-death people, but is it strictly Canada or can anybody in the United States join that? And would that help you if people from the U.S. joined? And do they get a vote at some point if, oh, yeah. you know, because I yeah, know absolutely. you're going forward. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So Every, would it be? We have members. We have members in the United States. We have members all over the world that, that heard our story. We have members in the mm-hmm. U.K., in Europe, Italy, for example, Australia. No, you know, truly, you know, pro-life people just thought that. We had, you know, we, here we were, this little <laughs> a bunch of nobodies standing up to, a, you know, a Leviathan. Um, and they, they came on board. And um, we, uh, we had our AGM, and we were able to elect 10 pro-life board of directors, um, and we were able to change our constitution to say that we are a strictly palliative care organization and we will have nothing to do with euthanasia. And that was a 75% to 25% uh, result. That's so, awesome. Yes. You know, we, we were so, able to win against the lobbyists. Let me restate her website for people that are listening. It's deltahospicesociety.org. And for $10, you can become a member, and when there is voting, you can vote your pro-life if they come, when they come. Because she is continuing this. I mean, she's not lying down and saying it's over. It ain't over till it's over. So if anybody out there wants to donate $10 to become a member, they also get, I'm not sure if it would help in the U.S., but you also have, like, access to a document to um, help people is am I am I wrong in that um, information yeah. like but if yeah. you're in a in a bad situation right you have some kind of document right yeah so so what I'll say that uh, just to lead up to that a little bit I'll take a step back and I'll say that um, but we we have learned the hard way we have been on the front lines of a war um, and we have learned a lot, um, and we have learned how to fight back, how to protect our, ourselves and our loved ones. And so we developed what we call a do not euthanize advanced directive uh, because um, our experience has been that our loved ones were having DNRs shoved in front of them. My mom, she's like 88 years old now, she went to just for a checkup. Our mom's not sick. My mom is actually doing really, really well for, for that age. But her doctor said, gave her a DNR, do not resuscitate. So if she was having any trouble like a heart attack or a stroke or, or, or anything, um, you know, it would be like, oh, just don't bother. Don't bother treating. Just let them die. 
Right. And I thought, you know, this is the gateway. This is the gateway to euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we developed a do not euthanize. So instead of a DNR, it's a DNE, advanced directive. And basically it says uh, that I will not be euthanized. I basically demand a death with dignity. You will feed me. You will give me water. You will give me air. And I will live to the end of my life naturally. And, you know, we had such a bad experience that we had to put that into that legal document because a friend of ours who became a friend of this society really posthumously um, was, he had stage four cancer. He was in the hospital. And the hospital, and he, he's a good, strong Christian. He, he, did, he refused euthanasia. He wanted to live as well as he could until his natural end. The, the hospital unilaterally decided to cut off his nourishment, cut off his water, and cut off his air. And his, his wow. mom had to get a lawyer to send a very threatening letter to the hospital telling them that they better put his, his nourishment back on. So he was without nourishment for a couple of days. They, they, they got scared. They turned him back on. He was in TPN, I believe it's called. They put that back on. So he was getting hydrated again. He was getting nourishment again. Um, but you know that put him in a coma, you know? Um, and then they, de- then they decided, oh, well, they turned off his oxygen. Um, and then they were really adamant. So if they were going to have to get another nasty lawyer's letter, to get them to turn his oxygen back on. So they turn it up to 50%. That is just um, so cool. It, you, you know, I'm asking you, are these not crimes against humanity? Is this they are. going on? This, so um, our- I want to let our audience know we are having some technical issues. There's a lightning storm, very bad thunderstorm where Marty is. And that is the background noise that you are hearing. So we're hoping that we stay live, that we don't lose connectivity. So, but, but Angelina, you're right. That is totally cruel. It's criminal to do that because the entire thing they're trying to do is to murder this man, and it's so apparent. It is. You know, we were, we were so uh, shaken just to the core that this kind of thing is going on. This kind of thing is going on. So, again, like I told you, I was naive when I started. I'm not so much now. Um, so this is why we put this specific clause into our DNA. Um, and we got a lawyer to do, so in Canada we have to do one for every province because it has specific statutes that deal with that in every province for advanced directives. So we prepared mm-hmm. a legal document for every province. Um, and now we... We give it to our members, right? Members, membership's $10. That's a good deal. You give it to our members. They can take it. They can sign it with two witnesses, and it becomes a legal advance directive. They can take it with them anywhere they go. And basically it's putting the administration on alert that you will not come to my room in the middle of the night when I'm at the most vulnerable point and try to convince me that I should be euthanizing myself over here. Um, and so, 
And it even says as well that if I ask for euthanasia, take it as a cry for help. That is not what I want. So, you know, we tried mm-hmm. to cover all the bases, <laughs> and we tried to be able to give this to, you know, our people so they can protect themselves um, in situations that they probably don't even realize that they're in. Um, and, yeah, I would like to, you know, extend out those DNEs to any members in the United States. Take it. See what, what statute is affecting your state. Um, you know, take it to a lawyer. See, change the statute, use the document, mm-hmm. uh, and protect yourself. So we will give it to you. Yeah, I think that's that's a very – well, to me, I, I don't know that, that it applies in the U.S. I know that halovoice.org has something very similar. Um, it's a life-affirming medical document. But regardless, being able to join just so you can have a say-so in the future, because if you guys come up against this, you still need to keep your membership fresh and keep having more members come in so that you can fight the tyranny that is going on because it is your intention to go fully private, right, at this point? Yes, we, yes. We, are, we are a private organization. We get no money from the government. In fact, the government penalizes us, continues to penalize us um, at our property that we own in Delta, uh, when we refuse to provide euthanasia, when the whole, you know, the whole battle, you know, the, they, they, they basically fought the war on our soil. Um, the, the activists, uh, you know, the, the mayor of Delta and the council of Delta, uh, you know, came out very strongly against us. Uh, they used to give us an exemption on our property for property tax because, you know, I was telling you about that property and the store we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the revenue we make from that store we use for our programs. So they, they took our exemption away. Uh, we now have to pay the property tax to the city of Delta in the amount of $38,000 a year. That's $38,000 that we can't put into our programming. Right. So, you know, not only do we not get government funding, right, we're paying the government just They're to be there. They're going to it to you. They absolutely, at every turn, they stick it to us. So, you know, it is only truly our membership that protects us. Because I don't know what they have up their sleeve next. But it's, you know, because we're a private organization, it is our membership that protects us because we do the will of the membership. Um, And if the membership wants us to affirm life, like our current membership does, we affirm life. Um, and Absolutely. we do not have anything to do with euthanasia. So it, that's why it's so vital that we have a strong membership, that they continue to support us. You know, for $10, I think, listen, it's the, ten, it's the best $10 you'll likely spend. Uh, in Americans, it's not even $10, right? I think it's like you get a 25% discount <laughs> if you use American right. dollars. So, so truly, um, you know, it is a, you know, I'm asking you to become, become a member because, you know, listen, it doesn't matter about borders because, like I said, this is pro-life nation. Pro-life exactly. nation has no borders. Exactly. And, I mean, we, you know, we have a lot of people, you know, I've had a lot of interviews with people from Canada, and, you know, we communicate back and forth also with the United Kingdom 
because they're going through the same type thing. You know, you're right. It is a pro-life movement nation because we're all dealing with this where we're losing our loved ones because the government wants to save money by eliminating those people. One of the comments when you guys were trying to um, go for a faith-based facility One of the comments, I noticed that a lot of people were very, very hateful in their comments back, and they seemed very attacking because they didn't want religion to be brought up in this. And they were saying that, you know, religion has no part in this, and this is political, and you shouldn't be doing it. Religion does have a part in in this in many aspects because that is part of your pro-life. That is how we were raised, that you believe that, life has meaning and that you do not kill people. Thou shalt not kill. It's part of the Bible, right? But one of the things that one of the nasty people, I'll say, said was he was making fun of you because you introduced yourself as pro-life, pro-God, and pro-gun, and he thought it was a contradiction of terms. And I could not help but when I looked at that, think, what a moron. I mean, the fact that you are pro-life and pro-God, to me, go right together, and the fact that you are pro-God because you believe in protecting people's life, and that is what pro-gun is about in many cases. I mean, it's not just about hunting, but it's about protecting yourself from government tyranny or protecting yourself for somebody who comes into your home to, you know, hurt you or your family or to rob from you. So they just seem to be in such a horrible attack mode on you personally and the Delta Hospice Organization Board of Members that I I thought it was disgusting, you know, how they behaved. And you're right, it has become a personal attack because you guys did not fall in line immediately when they said, uh, we're going to allow euthanasia, and you didn't just say, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, when they say the cancel culture, um, uh, it's, you know, it absolutely, we, you know, we have been targeted, uh, myself, because, you know, I'm very outspoken. If you, if you didn't, <laughs> no. you didn't get that right away, um, you know. I am very outspoken about, uh, you know, the sanctity of life. Um, I said this was this is the hill I will die on, is to protect life, the sanctity of life. Um, there is no greater battle that we have right now. It's tied to, you know, so many other issues, right? So mm-hmm. um, when they found that they weren't just going to, you know, we weren't just going to fall so easily. They came after me because they, they probably thought that if they can shut me up, if they can shut me down, they'll have a much better chance of, you know, taking over the organization. You know, what they found was I, I just got stronger. I didn't get weaker. Um, that I encourage other people to get canceled. Get canceled because the other side of that wall is freedom. I can say anything I want now. I don't care what they say. To me, mm-hmm. you know, um, they have pretty much destroyed my career, um, you know, in terms of if anybody Googles my name, they'll see right away, oh, uh, we don't want you working for us. I haven't been able to get new clients. I haven't been able to get a new job. Uh, all the work that I do for the Delta Hospice Society is all volunteer. 
I've never been paid to be a president of this organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, have to, I have to work. Um, but, you know, they have pretty much made it so I got kicked out of the, well, kicked out. I made it difficult to return to the church that I went to, to return to any of the community organizations that I went to. Uh, they have truly, you know, decided that I am an enemy of the state. Even the church? Well, look, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a Catholic. Um, I am now a traditional Catholic. Because within our religion, there is, I will consider it somewhat of a civil war going on. Um, you know, the, in terms of, you know, a lot of the social stuff that's going on within the church right now. So, no, I don't have 100% support from the parish that I went to. I don't go there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like Quite I said, hypocritical. I came into this very naive. <laughs> I'm very, I was very naive. I'm not naive anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I, I can understand that this is, this is, this is a far, far bigger question than just, you know, just what we're going through. But in any case, uh, I, I didn't get 100% support. Um, I now do uh, in the parish that I belong to, but Good. you know these are the things that um, we we live and we learn. Um, but in spite of all of that, um, they 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 will never silence me. Um, and much to their dismay, I think. But you know, and I hope that people will recognize all you need to do is stand um, and have courage because there's so many of us. There's so many of us out there that have been considered the silent majority, but we are not going to be silent anymore. That's right. We're talking out. We're speaking our truth, and we lived it. So I know the yeah. um, the group that... Um, I belong to um, Murdered by Hospice Facebook group, and Liz Eisner started the group. And when she started it, I was number 140 when I signed up, when I found her, and I was like, oh, this is something. And and that's where I found that this was happening to people all over. And it's it's a group of people that are like-minded, and we've all experienced the pain and the torture of watching our loved one be murdered we are now almost at 1,500. So there is value in numbers, and people need to stand together and stand strong because the more people you tell and the more that hear it, it's unfortunate that in our cases that they're hearing it after it happens. We would like to be able to educate people before it happens to them. But it is the like-mindedness and the oneness that we stand together and stand firm, and you don't stop telling your story. You don't stop telling the truth. One of the things that you stated in here, that you wanted to build a place where anyone who wants a safe and peaceful place to live out their remaining days will be welcome. And that, to me, says a lot about you and your leadership and the board, that it's a safe place. And, you know, if somebody wants to end their life, 
I mean, I, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion on euthanasia and whether it's right, whether it's wrong. I, you know, I, I'm not going to tell somebody what they're doing is right or what's wrong. I know that the Hippocratic Oath states that a doctor should do no harm, and so that puts it, you know, the doctor's hands, if he's writing you a prescription or he's giving you a lethal dose of something, um, that's kind of contradictory as to what they're supposed to do. But I'm not making judgment on someone who truly, truly wants to end their life. The problem is that slippery slope that people can be convinced that they need to give up their life because they are a burden to someone else. And when you talk about whether or not it's somebody who consents to it or somebody else is consenting for them, you cannot judge what somebody's quality of life is and whether or not they want to live or not. So it's, it just opens it up for a society of whether we decide, you know, this person has some issues, um, they're challenged, they don't need to live for whatever reason, and I'm not going to throw a reason out because I don't want somebody to say I said someone with this shouldn't live. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way that society is going is they are making the determination for other people and pressuring people to end their life, and it is about money. It is not about compassion. It is not about taking care of a person until their natural end of life. It is about saving money for the government, and they have spent a great deal of money to silence you and then to steal all of the assets. And I'm sure somebody's fat and happy with that $8 million that you guys raised. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, we we can't be naive anymore. Um, The fact of the matter is that taking care of people is expensive. Um, It's hard work. Um, and people need to be devoted. Uh, however, killing people is cheap. And, you know, we know that um, it costs about $400 to kill somebody here. That's um, about, like, about two-something or three-something, and then they pay the, the doctor's travel time. Um, so we know that how much, that's how much life is worth here, apparently. Um, we also know that it costs about, you know, $1,200 uh, in a public, you know, system to keep somebody in a bed um, a day. You know, probably if we did it privately, we could do it cheaper, but that's not how things are here, and everything's unionized up the yin-yang, and it's going to cost $1,200 a day to keep somebody in a bed. So, you know, we can do the math, right. um, and we, we can also – Say that now we've heard that there's things called like kill days where the doctor can come out just once and everybody's lined up and he just does one after the other. So you see that's like wholesale. Yeah. That's wholesale killing. That's probably right. cheaper, much cheaper than just the, than the $400, right? Because you're not so, having him travel all those places. Just come in and and. Dr. Toffler had talked about, which I mentioned earlier, had talked about the drugs that they use to euthanize people. There are a lot of issues with these drugs, and it does not mean it's like it's absolutely heartbreaking when you lose a pet and your pet has to be euthanized. It is 
gut-wrenching, I, I mean, horrible. But the alternative in their case is, I mean, it could be a slow, painful death. But it isn't that way with a human. You don't go in there and give them one shot and then the heart stops and it's over and you're done. There is a lot of preparation they do to that because a lot of times there can be nausea involved in that. It can cause spasms. They can cause tremors in that. They can throw up. They can feel a lot of pain with a lot of the different drugs. I mean, it is not a painless death when they do this. And it depends on the medication, if they get it just right, if it goes into the right vein, if they've got it, you know, figured out for the right, your right weight. I mean, there's all kinds of things, and it is not a one shot in two seconds and you're gone. And talking to Dr. Toffler about the the medication, the drugs that they use, this is not a good death, which supposedly euthanasia is definition a good death that's where it comes from the greek word but it's not and people don't know that and you're not telling them that and at one point um dr toffler was talking about in oregon that they had used um one type of drug and then it was too expensive so they started trying different types of drugs and experimenting on people they experimented on death row prisoners to get the dosing right, and they use some of the same drugs that they use for on the death row are some of the same drugs that are used in euthanasia. What? Yeah, exactly. So you know, you know what this really is. This is people voluntarily being executed by the state. Um, and yeah. we also know that. The reason why people are, you know, stepping up to this voluntary thing um, has far more to do with um, mental health crisis than it has to do with them suffering an intolerable pain. Here in Canada, um, you know, there are some stats about, you know, why people are choosing MAID. Um, And, you know, things at the top of the list include they don't want to be a burden. Uh, they don't want to have, lose, you know, like their autonomy or they might ha- need somebody to ha- take care of them. Um, there's, there's depression, anxiety. You know, these, all of these, and actually suffering is actually quite down far on the list. It's, it's not up at the top at all. So, you know, what these things are, these are mental health issues. Um, so in, instead of helping people and actually treating them, um, you know, it's, it's far easier just to allow them to kill themselves. So we have in Canada now, after the latest round of bills called Bill C-7, which, which was passed last spring, a year ago, uh, April, or, or something, March, um, there's this little area now that, you know, people don't even have to be dying to have right. euthanasia. They just have to be in an intolerable situation. And as of next year, people with mental health issues can kill themselves legally. Exactly. Have the doctor right. help them. 2023. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we have is a whole group of people who have been, um, well, we all have been, let's just say that. We all have been traumatized over the last two years. 
we all have been subjected to lockdowns, um, masking, um, COVID, hyper, fear-mongering, um, you know, mandatory injections against our choice. But if you want to keep your job, well, you better have it. Uh, we have all been subjected to out-of-sight inflation, um, war in the Ukraine, um, talk of third world war. You know, this we are a population of traumatized people. Well, and the economy. Um, and and I mean, the if econ- you look at yeah. the, the economy, and if you look at, you know, the truckers coming in and them being canceled and disregarded and, you know, gas prices and immigration, and you don't know if the people that they've let in are going to blow up a mall or they're going to go into your school and shoot your children. I mean, you know, and parents are struggling with how do I take my child out of, you know, a school and homeschool them. And you've got people that are, you know, uh, storming down at the White House and, you know, wanting to be able to, you know, kill a baby for any reason. So, yes, there is so much that is going on in our country that is incredibly stressful. And the elderly... You know, I would have. You know, I lost my dad in October, but he died a natural death because we protected him. After what had happened to my mom, it was not going to happen to my dad. But I saw with him, he didn't want to live anymore in this world. He saw what was going on, and he was very depressed about it, and he was very upset. I mean, he'd yell at the TV, you know, when things were going mm-hmm. on. So. And they are convinced, as like you said earlier, they don't want to be a burden to their family, and they're made to feel like they're a burden, you know, or they feel that way. I mean, there's so many things, so many reasons that people today may not want to live tomorrow. And yes. there are so many cases where people get the prescription, as in Oregon, and the statistics just statistical data, they get the medication, they don't take it, but it makes them feel less stressed because they know that if they if they need to, they have it there, and then it would be their choice. But it, it just, that slope, it's that slippery slope that other people can convince people that they don't want to live, and that to me is concerning. Because then it's well, not your choice. It's very Pardon? concerning, you know. Mm-hmm. It's very concerning. You know, and instead of offering help, true help, right, um, to people who are, you know, because it's going to be the really sensitive people who can't cope, who can't cope, um, and they need, they need support. They need to be able to, you know, figure out a way forward given all these crazy things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of offering them, you know, uh, ways to cope, they're offering them death. Right. So we, I right. believe we're going to see an exponential rise in euthanasia in my country, and, and likely yours as well, as, as your, each state sort of, you know, comes to the decision that you can just kill yourself. Um, you know, and, and these are the things that we have to put the brake on. I mean, that we, we are so um, blessed to have, you know, the information, the ability to help people but, you know, we're not really helping them. We're just allowing them to 
just kill themselves. So this is a complete abdication of our responsibility, you know, of the government and of uh, just normal people, an abdication of our um, duty to truly help our brothers and sisters that are going through a really hard time and need to have the support group set up, right? Need to have a facilitator to facilitate the support groups who need the counseling groups, who need to talk this stuff out, need to recognize that, you know, this too shall pass um, and that we will get to a brighter day and a brighter future. Uh, And not to just cater to the nihilism. Just kill yourself, right? That's the only answer they have for us, apparently. That's not acceptable. People have to tell their government that's not acceptable. And it isn't, but you, but we are fighting such a huge conglomerate, and it's it, you know it's like you said earlier about you know don't, not going to hospice or not going to the hospital. You know if people are aware that this is there, and if you're saying okay, you have to sign a DNR, well, yeah, that's probably not a good idea to sign a DNR, and to be aware that you know tomorrow is another day. And it doesn't mean that today, you know, that tomorrow is going to be as bad as today. It might, but then the next day might be better. But you have to have a reason to want to live, to continue living. And yeah, it, you know, yeah, you know, and there yeah. are bad things that happen to good people. But in the United States, we we have ten um, states that are have assisted suicide. And I thought it was interesting that a lot of this, the places that I was reading, they take offense to you saying the word assisted, saying the word suicide, and they had a lot of angst about that. Don't say suicide; it's medical assistance in dying. Okay, whatever you call it, the end result is you're not here the next day, and you know those that love you are going to miss you and, you know, going to grieve over you, and they're left behind. When you're gone, you're gone, and you don't know what the next day held and what the people behind you felt like that next day when they woke up and realized that you were gone. So it it affects a lot of people. And it just, you know, to me it's a slippery slope. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know when my time comes. I don't know how I'm going to feel, so I, I can't say that. But I just know that if there's an organization that has ten beds and everybody else in the Providence is agreed to it and checked off, yep, we'll do it, and the hospital directly across or next door to you was doing it, why was there such a push for you to comply with your ten beds? They could those people, yeah. if they wanted assisted suicide, they could go to the hospital to Delta Hospital and have it done. Why was there such a push to make your organization follow through with doing that when you did not believe in that when that was not what you were about? You were about palliative care and I'm not for people being in pain, but when you are giving palliative care, you are giving them something to minimize the pain, not put them in a coma, but to just minimize the pain. Um, well, I'm going to say we have 15 minutes if anybody has a question and they want to call in. 
Um, if you are already on the line, if you press 1, it will put you in the queue, and then you can ask your question. We'll continue, but I just want to open it up for any questions. Yeah, and, you know, what's really funny is that um, here we have, I don't know about in the United States, but here we have the kind of this movement for, you know, for the love of animals, right? And we have this, which is a great thing. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an animal lover for sure. I got a dog and a rabbit and you name it. But, you know, we have this movement for no-kill animal shelters. And we actually have no-kill animal shelters here. So they'll go and they'll rescue an animal and they won't euthanize it. They'll let it live out its life. They'll take care of it. But for us, you know, we want to have a no-kill hospice. And that's just out of the question. There's just no right. Way. The government steals our stuff. The people want to like kill us, you know, <laughs> kill us, right? For saying, I mean, isn't that like, they want to get you completely out of the way, right? Yeah. So you know, well, what, what our dream is, um, just to put it out there so that you know, our dream is to open up a sanctuary, not a sanctuary for animals but a sanctuary for people, for human beings. You know, our first one, uh, we want to call it hospice sanctuary, where no one will be euthanized, no one will have their death hastened, and we will protect our patients who come to our facility. Uh, We have all the plans for the hospice because we already built one. We built a beautiful hospice. Um, So we can take those plans and we can build another hospice. But what we're going to need to find is we're going to do this all privately. On private land, the government will have nothing to do with it. So, you know, we're looking for a piece of land anywhere, it doesn't matter, um, where we can have our first sanctuary. Um, and maybe that's what we should be calling these places. Never mind hospice. Sanctuaries anymore. instead of hospice, absolutely. I yeah. like it. So when you had at the Delta hospice um, society how many doctors and nurses did you have for your 10 beds well we just had one doctor okay um and um she she was like for the for the patient there uh we had a number of nurses because it was like 24 7 rotation right so we had to have i can't tell you exactly how many we had we had a number of nurses on staff and a number of just casual number part-time some full-time so um, it depended. Uh, and then you have volunteers. Yes, and we have volunteers that came um, because, not, of course, not everybody has a family. And I'll, I'll tell you mm-hmm. something very, very ironic, and this is where the pro-life movement, it's a full circle. Because when we protect our babies and we protect our family and our family is priority, when we get old, um, those babies protect us. But those people who don't have those babies and that family, there's nobody to protect them. That's and they right. get into the system, right? And they, they become at the mercy of the system because it, it requires a devoted family to be your advocate. You know, when that time comes, when you're old or when you're sick. So, you know, our, our little angels that would come to the hospice to sit a vigil or to help people, um, you know, those were the, you know, the people who didn't have families for, or, the, or the families just couldn't be there all the time, right? 
So that's the importance right. of, a, of like a, a volunteer that comes. So, um, you know, I, I just want to leave one thing with you before we end, and that is, um, you know, because we're Christian and, you know, the, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Jesus was waiting and he knew he was going to die, he knew what was coming. And in the middle of the night, um, all the people that loved him, they fell asleep. They couldn't wait up, and he had to sit there by himself to suffer and to ponder. But an angel came, and an angel sat with him to console him. And that is what we have to be in a hospice at the end of life. We have to stand with those people, and we have to be their angels. Uh, And this is why we're here, uh, and this is why, you know, uh, this is our calling is to help those people to get to the other side. So uh, to go home, basically, right, to meet, to meet Jesus and, and, to, and to be with our Lord. So, you know, that's why the work that we do is so important. And that's Absolutely. why we need to, right, this is why we need to have a sanctuary. I think that's wonderful that there are, you know, you have a group of people there that obviously feel the same way and are standing behind you and the organization to build a sanctuary to give people that peaceful time before their natural end. And, I, you yeah. know, I mean, I think everybody should want to go to a place like that where you feel safe and secure and you know that nobody's going to be trying to force you to do that. Do you all go to homes, too, or is it just the facility at the Delta Hospital when it was open, right? So it's people, residents that come into the facility. Yes, and we do, we want to start now a home hospice network so that people who can, you know, try to keep people in their homes for as long as possible. Uh, We know that's not so realistic because sometimes people don't have the support to be able to stay in their homes. Mm-hmm. But if they do, right, if they have a devoted family or they have some means in which to, to be able to stay in their home, you know, we want to be able to send the doctors in, uh, you know, to be able to give them their medicine. Uh, we want to be able to send volunteers in to the home to, you know, relieve uh, family members from having to sit by their loved ones, you know, 24-7, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is it. Yeah, so this so, is, you know, this is the... Let me ask you how this would work. If you do the sanctuary, and I know this is like, you know, in the future, but because the government, you know, like Medicare in the United States, and in your case, you know, the, um, British Columbia was paying, Fraser was paying the money, you know, for your facility to be open. If you do a sanctuary, it will be privately paid for, right, so that if a person came in and a patient or a resident, then they would pay directly because you guys don't have insurance. Yours is kind of a socialist health care yeah. system, correct? Yeah, yeah, entirely, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, they're trying to make us be that way too. But so the person, it's like if you were living in your house and you're paying your mortgage payment and then you go into an assisted living or you go into a nursing home after so many days, you no longer can be in that nursing home. So if I'm looking at my loved one and they can't stay in the home, you know, I was fortunate I could keep my dad here. Everybody doesn't have that ability. 
I would rather pay my loved one to be in a facility where I knew they were not going to be tortured and murdered and to privately pay. And people spend their entire life, you know, saving their money and living in their home. And if you wind up having to sell that home to use the assets so that that loved one is in a safe environment, that to me is what it's about. That, you know, everybody doesn't get to get an inheritance. It, that money should be for that person to live their life until a natural death. Yeah, that is. And, and you know, we know that there's going to be people who won't be able to, you know, so we have to come up with ways of being self-sufficient. I, I, you know, the, the problem is, certainly in my country, and is that we have depended so much on the government, the government to do everything, you know, mm-hmm. go to the hospital, the government's going to pay, education, the government's going to pay. Well, it's gotten us into a lot of trouble, quite honestly. So, right. you know, we have to start thinking of ways to be independent. Um, how are we going to, you know, take care of ourselves without having to depend on the government to give us everything? Like my ancestors, when they came to this country, there was no government with a handout. I mean, they had to figure out how to do everything on their own. Um, and we've actually created a nation that way. Um, so, you know, we got to think about ways, you know, revenue-producing streams uh, that can pay for this, you know, our sanctuary. So, you know, we mm-hmm. have thought about this a lot. We, we have, uh, like I said, a second-hand store. We're hoping at some point in the future to get another one, right? So people basically donate their, their used items, you know, some people's trash, other people's treasures. So we take that, right? We sell it, and the money that we get out of that goes to the program. So, I mean, these are the ways, right? What other ways? Of course, we can always fundraise. Of course, we can ask for donations and stuff. But, you know, we got to start thinking how can we do this on our own Um, and get back to Marcia, you've got to call her on the line? if you want to take Okay. Her. Yeah, hang on a second. Yeah. Here, go hold ahead. on. Thank uh, you. Area code 470. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, this is Hi. Becky Harbor. Hi. Um, this Hi, is Becky. a question. Hi. Um, I have a question that I'd like to ask you. Um, on Concerning the advanced directives, um, I know that you've mentioned that how strong the government presence is in your country. Um, I'm really aware of that, but I, I'm afraid that's exactly where the United States is going. But um, but with that being said, on the advanced medical directive, um, are you aware that in the United States that it only takes a slam of the gavel and without even any proof or even thinking about it, a judge removes the advanced medical directive. Um, I will tell you this. um, When I hired an attorney regarding my deceased husband, how he lured me in, he said, oh, they're not letting you see your husband and and make medical decisions and you have an advanced medical? He says, oh, that would go straight to the Supreme Court in Georgia. That very attorney went behind my back with a judge, did not let me know that he was taking my advanced medical directive and sent my husband to his death. 
Um, I was just wondering, are you aware of of how that advanced medical is absolutely zero in the United States of America? Yeah, right. Um, I think, uh, you know, we haven't had it tested here in Canada either. We've never had one of our advanced directives tested in the courts. Okay. Um, but we do have, uh, you know, people can have advanced directive about, all, about other things, like do not resuscitate. That apparently is okay. Um, and other, you know, uh, giving people, um, uh, you know, they could be a representative. Um, that's apparently okay. So, you know, we would try to align ourselves with those things being perfectly fine. So ours should be fine. But other than that, you know, I think that we would put this forward to the administration of the organization or the facility, um, and we would hope that they're not going to challenge it, that there will be so many that, you know, um, it Angelina, is a I hate to cut you, but you have 56 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Before we're well, off I the just air. Want... Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Becky, for calling in. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was a good program. Sooner. That was a so. nice program. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, okay. Becky. Um, so is there anything else that you want to say, Angelina? I want to give everybody your website again, org. Please consider joining $10, and it helps them. It gives you a voice. Yeah, just – Thank you so much, Marcia, for having me tonight. Um, Thank I think you for that, coming on. You know, I think that what we need to do is just recognize that there's so many of us um, that together, you know, we are a mighty nation. Um, from the from the from the you know from life at conception to natural end, there we have um, an untapped power that we don't we're not even aware of. Uh, we could change this world, and uh, once we start waking each other up, I believe that we will. So, okay. um, you know, it may take us a little while. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on tonight, and for all of our listeners, thank you for listening and wishing everybody a good rest of your evening. Take care. Good night.